0: Now let's turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 15, and we will look at the first 20 verses together, Matthew 15, verses 1 through 20, but let's briefly pray together. Almighty Father, help the under-shepherd of the Lord Jesus, who is the great shepherd of his sheep to faithfully expound the text of Scripture. Give to us minds and hearts that are riveted upon truth. Help us to set aside, whether it be tired bodies or minds, or perplexities or concerns, joys or sorrows, so that we may focus upon Christ in this text. And do we also pray, Heavenly Father, that the ministers of the Word here will preach every sermon as if it may be their last. As a dying man to dying men, that we may remember that we stand before a just and holy God and that only the gospel, only the truth of Christ, only his redeeming work on the cross can save us. For those among us who are lost and undone, who do not know you, may they come to faith in Christ and may your people grow in grace. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 15 beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. What you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Jesus' penetrating analysis of the Pharisee's heart may seem very culturally and historically distant to us, but when we begin to understand that since the fall, every single human being has a Pharisee deep within the soul, that distance seems to go by the wayside. We want to see this morning a matter of the heart a matter of the heart. And we begin, first of all, by looking at the Pharisees' wrong view of God. Now, it all surrounds this issue of hand-washing, as we read in those first two verses. The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. They said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat? so these Pharisees and scribes see Jesus' disciples eating with unwashed hands. These Pharisees and scribes are from Jerusalem. Undoubtedly, they represent something like an official delegation. They're very highly respected. And they see Jesus and the disciples as ritually unclean because what they are doing is extending the purity laws from the priests in the Old Testament to the entire populace in order to fence the law of God so that there could not be any possibility that the law of God could be broken in any way. And so it all surrounds this issue of hand-washing. They accused Jesus and the disciples of breaking the tradition of the elders. Now, let me say in passing that I've sometimes heard this text used to denounce tradition in general. That is a misuse of the text. As a matter of fact, biblically, we should be very concerned with tradition. That's part of covenant theology and passing to our children the good things that have come to us from our fathers. That's not the point of the text. It is not tradition in general. It is the tradition of the elders that he has in mind here. This mountain of oral law that has been placed atop God's own law that is viewed as almost canonical in authority by the Pharisees and the scribes. Later, this oral tradition would be written down. It's what we call the Talmud. It's what we call the Mishnah and the Gemara. An entire tractate of the Mishnah deals with hand-washing. One of them reads this way, If a man poured water over the one hand with a single rinsing, his hand is clean. But if over both hands with a single rinsing, Rabbi Meyer declares them unclean unless he pours over them a quarter log or more, a certain measure of water. And so on and on and on with these rules that relate to life and the washing of hands. Now what's really going on here? What's really happening here is that the Pharisees and scribes on the one hand and Jesus who is God incarnate and the disciples on the other have totally differing views of who God is and of what the law is all about. The law takes on a totally different meaning for those who believe that obedience is meritorious and for those who know that obedience is not meritorious. This entails a different concept of God and how we are saved. The Pharisees believe that we're saved by merit, that we're saved by works, that we're saved by what we do. Jesus' disciples, on the other hand, will come to understand better and better that the law cannot save, that the law can only condemn, and that only when I find my salvation in Christ will the law find its proper role as a rule of life in the Christian walk. And so what Jesus is doing is shattering the delusion of merit. Now I wonder if there is someone here that needs that delusion, that illusion, to be shattered in your life. That you really, even though you may confess differently, that you really deep down believe, as did the Pharisees and the scribes, that God will accept me when I do certain things, act certain ways, when I follow certain prescriptions, when I obey his law, when I'm good to others, that God will accept me. You need to understand that no one is accepted by God on the basis of what he does. We are only accepted by God on the basis of what Christ has done for sinners. So that's the first thing we see here. The Pharisees have a wrong view of God. Second thing, Jesus exposes hypocrisy. Now in verse 7, when he says to the Pharisees and scribes, you hypocrites, and then he quotes from Isaiah 29. This is the first written record that Jesus of Jesus speaking to the Pharisees and calling them hypocrites. Now, the theme has been there before. All the way back in chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, we saw it around chapter 6, verse 2. But here is the first time he actually uses the term and calls them hypocrites. They made a show of their religion, their involvement in religious ceremony they believe was an evidence of their relationship with God. Listen to me. Your involvement in religious rite and ceremony is no evidence of true conversion. Every truly converted person should be involved in worship, for example. We should care about these things very deeply. They have, a, they have a, an inseparable relationship to our Christian walk. But They do not justify us. They do not make us acceptable to God. They do not declare us right in God's sight. Involvement in religious ceremony is no sure evidence of conversion. So the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees is shown in a couple of ways in this passage. The first way, hypocrisy is shown by their merciless hearts. Now this is found in about verses 3 through 6, in which they accused the disciples of having broken the tradition of the elders. Jesus says, you have broken the law in favor of the tradition of the elders. Look again. He answered them, verse 3, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father for the sake of your tradition. You have made void the word of God. They're merciless. Now, what's happening here is something in this period that was called Corbin. A person, for example, could say, you know, Mom, you're really getting old and feeble. And um, I, as your son, really ought to be taking care of you. I understand that. But you've got to understand that I have dedicated my money to the temple treasury. And uh, since I've dedicated it to God, I I can't use it to help you. I'm sorry. But then he could say Corbin over his substance. And he could make use of that money for himself. So it was all about self-centeredness. And evidently, the scribes and Pharisees were acting that way toward their needy parents. They had merciless hearts. Why is there a connection between hypocrisy and a merciless heart? Well, it's very simple. Those who do not know themselves to have experienced the mercy of God will show themselves in various ways to have merciless hearts. It's only the person who is truly converted who knows that God has shown him mercy that will show mercy to others. Only when I know that I'm a criminal against God's law and deserve no good thing will I then be accepting of others around me who also are fellow sinners in need of the grace of God. And so their merciless hearts demonstrate hypocrisy. Second way in which hypocrisy is demonstrated is by their attitude to the word of God. They invalidate it. Again there in verse 6, Jesus says, you make void the word of God. And then amazingly, in verses 7, 8, and 9, he cites Isaiah 29. And I say it's amazing because look at how he introduces it in verse 7. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you. He goes all the way back to this 8th century B.C. prophet and he says, Isaiah was speaking about you. It's not only God's word then and there, it's God's word here and now. And so he applies it directly to them, because in Isaiah 29:13 it references those who were playing games. Their religion was show and not substance. It was outwardly impeccable, but inwardly they were dead. And he says to the Pharisees, "That's you. Outwardly impeccable, inwardly, as he will later say, "You are filled with dead men's bones." You are a whitewashed sepulcher. You trounce the law of God. And so Jesus' penetrating response to the Pharisees is this What does the Bible say? You show such concern for the law, show such concern for the Word of God, but you aren't reading the Word. You aren't knowing the Word. You aren't understanding the Word. What does the Bible say? You're hiding behind the tradition of the elders. You are hiding behind your achievements. You are hiding behind your devious plans. But you are wearing the emperor's new clothes. You are totally naked. And when the Word of God comes in all of its force and truthfulness It rips off whatever shreds of merit you think you're wearing in the presence of a holy God. What does the Bible say? Jesus says to these Pharisees. Now, I think it will be a helpful thing if I remind you of something that I said way back there in chapter 6. We looked at the characteristics of hypocrites. I'm just going to mention them in passing again. Because this will come up time and again in Matthew. What are the characteristics of hypocrites? The inside does not correspond to the outside. Remember rich window cushions stuffed with hay, as one of the Puritans put it? They love their sin, but they will not cry, Search me, O God, and know my heart, try me, and see if there is any wicked way within me. The hypocrite does not have God's glory as his goal in life. The hypocrite tries to find merit somewhere other than in the righteousness of Christ. Hypocrites may hate sin from the trouble that sin brings, but not because it offends God. Hypocrites are never habitually low in their own eyes. No hypocrite desires the pure word of God. He cannot endure being dissected by the word. Hypocrites tend to live for the applause of men. And hypocrites are self-deceived. They are very religious, but they are very lost. The word hypocrite originally meant actor. And that's what they're doing. They are playing a part. They are acting. And they're so good at it that they've forgotten that they're acting and that they think they're right. Now, when I go through that list, if you're like me, you'll say, oh, I see too much of that in my own heart. Yes, Every child of God can say, These things are too much a part of my life, but no child of God wants to stay that way. And every true child of God, when he hears these things, is driven to the cross and the blood of Jesus. Listen to me God has not tied his grace to forms, form is important. All things should be done decently and in order. We come to the Lord's table, there's a form. We have a worship service, there's a form. In your personal prayer life, I hope there is a form. Form is extremely important, but God has never promised to tie His grace to forms. And these people thought that just by going through the motion of form, that God owed them grace. Third thing. True defilement is expounded by Jesus here. True defilement. Jesus says, look, it's not what you take in. It's not by dietary laws and washing your hands. and It's not what you take in that's going to defile you. It's what comes out that defiles you. The source of defilement is the human heart. And in verses 12 through 14... The disciples came to him. Do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind will lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. Don't you know the Pharisees were really offended when you said this about their forms? Jesus doesn't say, Well, I'm, you know, I need to go find them so I can apologize. He doesn't apologize. This was the truth, and the truth only can set us free. And they needed to hear the truth. You know, preaching that rarely offends anybody never helps anybody. It, it, when the gospel, I actually read, an evangelical leader actually said this. I read it recently. He said, if people are being offended when you preach, you're not preaching the gospel right. And I couldn't believe my eyes. Because Jesus says, and the Bible says, the opposite. When the truth is truly preached, sometimes people are going to be offended. Paul spoke of the offense of the cross. So he doesn't apologize. As a matter of fact, he digs it deeper. And Jesus says the Jews see themselves as God's plant, but they're not. You Pharisees are not of God's planting. You are not what you think you are. Some people are of man's planting that think that they are of God's planting. And God promises that a day is coming in which there will be an uprooting. Now, let me ask myself, you ask yourself, am I the plant whom the Lord has planted, or am I the plant that only man has planted? You know, Jonathan Edwards, when the revival was there in Northampton in the 18th century, that massive revival that converted so many as the Holy Spirit was at work, he says, those unconverted professors those who profess faith in Christ who are unconverted. Those unconverted professors are in the most dangerous state in which a man can be. And that's what you have with the Pharisees. They are unconverted professors of faith in Jehovah. Of course, Satan cannot pluck those who are truly planted by God, but of them, he says, they're they're blind, they're guides to the blind, they're going to lead other people into the ditch because they're following blind men And Jesus says to the disciples, let them alone. In other words, God is going to deal with it. Let them alone. And then he explains, answering the question, what does the little parable mean? What does this mean? It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles the person. That's the parable. What does it mean? Don't you understand? Jesus says, and then he explains. Look at verses 17 through 20 again. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile the person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. What goes into the body is mere food. What comes out of the mouth is a manifestation of the heart. And so Jesus describes the human heart as a den of evil. It's a description given by him who cannot lie, that from the heart all these things proceed. These are not just mistakes because of environment. He's putting his finger right on the sore, which is the human heart, the affections of the heart. These are the things that come from not loving God supremely, the thorough corruption of the heart. And then he gives a list. Now, the list is selective. But look at the list. First, he tells us in this list, there are, this is verse 19, evil thoughts. For out of the heart come evil thoughts. Evil thoughts come from the heart. Bad theology comes from an evil heart. Systems opposed to God, false philosophies come from an evil heart. Immoral desires come from an evil heart. But I don't actually do what I think, someone says. Well, even if that were the case, don't think little of this. By nature, we are guilty because of what we think, not only what we do. Next, he lists murders. Murder is not just taking the gun or the knife and killing. It's unjustifiable anger. It's wishing someone dead or harmed. It's hatred of someone. To hate your brother is murder, we're told in 1 John. And then he talks about unchastity. He mentions adultery and sexual immorality. Unchastity. Our lust can be so very dear to us. Pornography, magazines, little boy sitting here, young man sitting here. Let me tell you, don't follow older boys in looking at things that your eyes shouldn't see. It can grip your heart. It can take over your life. It can put a thought in your mind, a picture in your mind that will be there the rest of your days to plague you. It's unchastity. It's popular for young women now to say, so I am told, it's okay if I sleep with a boy so long as I love him. It's not, it's unchastity. It's unchastity. It's not love. (coughs) Theft is on the list. Having a covetous heart. False witness-bearing. Failure to love God and neighbor. And then, it's actually translated slander here in the ESV, but the word really is blasphemy. To speak in a vile way about God Now, if God were love, these things would not be. When I was a boy, I used to spend a lot of time in the woods. My mother would have had a fit if she had known the places that I would go, the swamps and the snaky places. But I just loved it when I was a boy. And I was out in the woods one day, way out or deep in, and I came across, to my utter surprise, I came across an artesian well. Right there in the middle of nowhere. This clear, beautiful water bubbling up out of the earth. What a find. I felt like Indiana Jones. Maybe nobody's found it since. Maybe I've made the discovery. Maybe it was the Fountain of Youth and I should have had some water. So here was this wonderful thing. You know, when I saw this water bubbling up out of the ground, I knew there was a source, right? When we see in our hearts, in our minds, in our actions, in our world, certain things coming out, we know that there's a source. And that source is not producing pure, crystal clean, cleansing water, it is producing black death. I'm talking about by nature, those outside of Christ, that's what it produces. There's a source. When you see all this happening, there is a source. So Jesus is saying here look, it's not washing your hands and dietary laws. These aren't the issues. The issue is what is in the heart. Now that leads me to my fourth point, fourth thing that I want to say. What Jesus teaches here helps us to think about the whole Bible and points to certain truths. Let me list some of them for you. The first truth that is behind all of this is the fall of man in Genesis 3, of which we read also in Romans 5 and in other places. The fall of man, that when Adam fell, all of his posterity sinned in him and fell with him. And the entire human race is now corrupt because we are fallen in our first parent, Adam. That's what the Bible teaches, the fall of man. The second doctrine that is found behind all of this is the doctrine of original sin. The corruption of our nature because of our fall in Adam. As the psalmist said in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. You know, this list is really all about original sin. You, know, you look at this list again. For out of the heart, this is verse 19, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. My wife took a CD of one of my sermons to a neighbor. This was some, some time ago. And uh, the neighbor listened to it, brought it back. Vicki said, what did you think? Well, I really liked it, except when he talked about sin... Well, what was the problem there? Well, you see, I'm an educator, and we educators believe that what we call sin, that we, we are actually going to overcome over time by teaching, by teaching people. We're going to teach them. You know, if you teach and educate a sinner, he's just going to sin in a more sophisticated manner. Education is, not, is, is wonderful, but education is not going to solve the problem of the human heart. Turn your Bibles to Romans 3, will you? Romans 3, beginning with verse 9. Here's the Apostle Paul's autopsy of the human heart, his dissection of the human heart, his analysis of the human heart. Romans 3, verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, that is, Gentiles, are under the power of sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The doctrine of original sin. But more positively, not only have we seen the doctrine of the fall, the doctrine of original sin, but we also see the necessity of the new birth, the doctrine of the new birth. Because only a God of grace can bring life to spiritually dead hearts. You know, when I preach, and I'm called to preach the Word of God, it's, it's like taking the Word is like a dandelion. The Spirit of God blows and takes the various pieces of the dandelion into various hearts and germinates the seed. That's his work. Only he can do that. Only he can save a sinner. Only he can regenerate. Only he can take the word to convert the heart. But let me tell you, when he does, he does. When he saves, he saves. When he converts, he converts. I remember when I was a boy, when I was undone, and I was lost, and there was such darkness in my soul, and when Christ called me to himself, it was instantaneous. And all of my carnal thoughts about God, my wrong thoughts about God, I'm not saying I understood everything properly, but nonetheless, all of them were nailed to the cross. And I began to grow and understand who God is, who man is, what the world was all about, what his purpose in my life was all about. That's the new birth. Supernatural, regenerating work of the Spirit of God. But also as we think about this list as we think about the human heart it also points us to the doctrine of the imputed righteousness of Christ. For what does the spirit of God do? He regenerates, he grants saving faith and then we embrace Jesus Christ freely offered in the gospel. Christ the representative and surety of his people obeyed the broken law and he transfers his perfect record to the account of the believer. The Bible says that's justification by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Christ alone. Listen, that's the standing or falling doctrine of the church. That is the most, that is the cardinal doctrine of salvation in the Christian faith. I've told you this, if I wake you up at 3 a.m., ask you what is justification, man, I expect you are able to give an answer. I was listening just recently to something I picked up at General Assembly, just got to it, was listening to it in the car. Something on the book of Galatians, actually. Some young people are being interviewed on a conservative, conservative Christian college campus. I think there were twelve of them. What is the book of Galatians about? Two out of twelve could answer the question, kind of. Justification? They can't answer the question. One young man said, I was 19 years old before I, and I grew up in the church, in a conservative church. I was 19 years old before I heard the word justification and the word sanctification. Well, what was happening? They were teaching me all about how to live life. They were teaching me ethics. They didn't teach me the Bible. I wouldn't give up what Jeff McDonald is doing and the teaching of our young people here for all the tea in China. Teach the Bible, parents, to your children. Teach them about justification. Teach them about imputed righteousness. There's nothing they need to understand more than that. Nothing you and I need more than that then to every day grow in our understanding of what it means that I am declared righteous in the sight of God. Yes, I have a heart that is filled with evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander, but there is not one of these sins that is unforgivable because Jesus shed his blood and because his perfect righteousness is imputed to every believer in Christ. And so, the great doctrine that underscores everything that Jesus is teaching is that to which Matthew is moving, the atonement of Jesus on the cross. Because when a heart sees that his sin deserves the displeasure, infinite displeasure of God, he will cry out for a Savior. What does every sin deserve? Westminster Shorter Catechism, Every sin deserveth God's wrath and curse, both in this life and in that which is to come. So you see this list? If you remain outside of Christ, you are absolutely hopeless. We are hopeless unless someone obeyed the law in my place, unless someone paid the penalty, the debt in my place. And the glorious way in which I've described that to us as a congregation in all these years is to say, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came, obeyed the law, went to a cross, paid the debt. His infinite nature gave to his finite suffering's infinite value. Now, I was reading Charles Spurgeon, a sermon on expiation, 1864, a little before my birthday. And he put it in this beautiful way. A God bowing his head and suffering and dying in the person of manhood puts such a singular efficacy into every groan and every pang that it needs not that his pangs should be eternal or that he should die a second death. The dignity of the person adds a special force to the substitution and thus one bleeding savior can make atonement for millions of sinful men and the captain of our salvation can bring multitudes into glory. That's the answer to the list in Matthew 15. That's the answer to the depravity of the heart in Matthew 15. That's the answer to the corruption of my nature. Jesus is God's Son who shed His blood and removes my guilt once and for all and imputes His righteousness to the account of every believer in Christ. And that's what the Pharisees They didn't get. They never looked to grace. Oh, they talked about grace, but they never understood grace. They had a low view of God's law. They believed that the law of God was keepable. Now turn again to the book of Romans. Keep your finger in Matthew because we're coming back. But in the book of Romans, the 10th chapter. Now here's the problem with the the Jew of Paul's day. This was Paul's problem. It's our problem. Romans 10, verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God. Now, that's the imputed righteousness of Christ, the perfect record of Christ. Being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God. And look at this. Seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. So here it is, you must either disown your own righteousness or you must disown the righteousness of Christ, but you cannot mingle the two. You cannot say I'm going to have my perfect record, my merit, my righteousness, my good works as if we had any and I'm going to have the righteousness of Christ to somehow supplement where I fail. No. It is altogether the perfect record of Christ. I have no merit of my own. And so let me ask, do you see your need? Our need must be very, very great indeed, infinitely great if it required the Son of God to come into this world to pay the penalty and the debt of my sin. It is indeed an infinitely deep need. This this human heart filled with corruption is a bottomless pit. You need, I need, the precious, what Peter calls the precious blood of Christ. You need a gracious intervention. Ignore the cross And you are neglecting your own soul with eternal consequences. And so I call you to faith in Christ, my friend. Trust in Christ alone for your redemption. Now hear this and be glad. Those of us who by the work of the Holy Spirit have seen that our hearts are corrupt through and through and we cannot do one thing to save ourselves, let me take you all the way back to the first chapter of the book of Matthew and remind you of why he came. Why did he come? Matthew 1, beginning with verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. For he will save his people from their sins. Talk about Christmas in November. People of God. Why did he come? He didn't come for good people. He came for sinners. What did he do? He saved his people from sin their sins. So I ask you, as we come to the table of the Lord, does not your renewed heart, once black, now cleansed by the blood of Jesus, does not your renewed heart shatter in pieces with the joy that fills it as you consider you are washed clean by the blood of a lamb? Does it? <laughs> Let's not live mechanically, let us not live as machines, let us not come to the table just out of mere form but with warm, passionate hearts beating with love for the one who loved us and gave himself for us, Jesus Christ our Lord.